if you do have your Bibles, uh, we're, we're going to be starting in Matthew. Um, and this is the second part of a, a, a series just talking about what does it mean to promote the kingdom, or at least how do we understand that as a, a local church. And, and, um, uh, and one of the things that, that I hope we see is that promoting the kingdom is, is not just directly in terms of you know, evangelistic proclamation. That's, that's part of what I am hoping you see, that there are many ways in which we can promote the kingdom um, that uh, is not that direct way. And we'll, we'll come to that um, in the next couple of weeks. But, but today, I, I want to talk about uh, promoting the kingdom through our deeds and, and through our, our good deeds. A couple of weeks ago, our presbytery... Um, so a presbytery is our regional governing body within the evangelical Presbyterian church. And so that body um, of pastors and elders um, met in West Lafayette, Indiana. And um, as part of that meeting, that gathering, the host pastor, some of you may know, is um, uh, Pastor David Henderson. And he took a little time to address the Presbyterian, and I thought part of what he said was kind of pertinent um, to this topic that that we're looking at this morning. He talked about how his own church, um, Covenant Church, had to face the reality that in their own um, evangelistic outreach, that they uh, saw hardly any fruit in terms of people coming to Christ uh, through the witness of their own church family. And, and then he recounted, you know, and so their, their elders have been working through issues of, of their church's identity and so forth, but he recounted this conversation he had with a, a mentor friend of his by the name of Leighton Ford. Some of you may recognize that name because he's uh, Billy Graham's brother-in-law and worked very closely with the, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association before creating his own um, uh, evangelistic uh, uh, enterprise. And so um, David met with him. Apparently, Leighton Ford lives somewhere in North Carolina. But he said, Leighton, I have this sense that evangelism, and then he paused um, when Leighton Ford finished his sentence saying, it isn't working anymore. David Henderson went on to say that increasingly, quote, the gospel makes people feel like they're being targeted, like they're a project of ours. I'm thinking that the only thing that will really reach people for Christ, and then he said, Leighton um, concluded his sentence, is love. Sometimes we, we think that the only way to, to really promote the kingdom is through traditional gospel presentations, um, and, and there is a place for this to be sure. Um, but the reality is that uh, th- those kinds of presentations in our current context are less effective, and there are lots of reasons for this. Um, and further, th- they just make a lot of people extremely uncomfortable. Um, and, and so we're, we're seeing just less effectiveness in this way. And so that's what has led me just to thinking through, how do we promote the kingdom of God that isn't necessarily directly the verbal? There are times where that is um, uh, that is those opportunities arise. Sometimes we just need to boldly take those opportunities. Um, but there are other uh, cases where um, it isn't wise to go in that direction. There is a way that we can promote the kingdom, in some cases, 
without words. That's what I'm talking about. How do we promote the kingdom in some cases without words, at least from us? And so uh, part of the point of the sermon is that good deeds and good words go hand in hand, okay? Good deeds and good words go hand in hand. Um, And it seems that more often it'll be the case that before people are willing to listen to the good words, that they need to have their hearts softened, that um, by the love of God flowing through us, flowing that love that the Spirit places in our hearts, love for Christ, love for one another, love for the world, uh, that they need to feel that love uh, before they're receptive to the message. And so that leads us to our beginning text uh, for today. Would you stand for the reading and the hearing of the Word of God? And I'm reading, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, um, 13 through 16. So this is Jesus speaking. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Would you again pray with me? Spirit of the living God, we offer you our glory, worship, and praise as we seek to listen and to be fed by your word. As the one who inspired this word, may you bring understanding, may you bring comprehension to our hearts and minds. We seek that wisdom which is from above and which you promise to give to those who ask. And so we ask it in the name of our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to this passage, we we need to see, and hopefully this is not a hard sell for anyone here, that a life marked by what the Bible describes here in terms of salt and light, that this kind of life, this kind of church, has remarkable power. Okay, So salt and light are are really critical uh, in our life together uh, and in our lives as individuals. So Jesus is, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's primarily speaking to uh, uh, those who are, are, are following him, uh, and um, he's, he's working through, you know, what does, this is a very practical sermon, what does it mean as a follower of Christ um, to, to live for him? And so as he, he, he's already been through the Beatitudes, he's talking about these critical attitudes that are uh, appropriate for uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and now he comes to these metaphors, the metaphors of salt, these, the critical metaphors of salt and light. And first he says that his followers, the believers, are to be salt. And in the ancient world, salt was used for uh, two primary purposes. The first one was as a preservative you know, they don't have refrigeration, um, so salt was a critical way to preserve meat, to preserve fish, um, and it was also used, just like we use it today, for seasoning, um, the seasoning of, of food. And uh, as a preservative, 
you know, that metaphor speaks to Christians um, in this way, that the Christian believers should help preserve what is good. Uh, or at least, as some commentators speak of, the, at least slowing down <laughs> the societal and moral decay uh, in, in our spheres of influence. Uh, one scholar, Leon Morris, uh, he writes this. Uh, I just like his language. He says, What is corrupt believers are to oppose? They penetrate society for good. They act as a kind of moral antiseptic. That's their saltiness. And then he says, and they give a tang to life like salt to a dish of food. You know, you, you see both that preserving quality, that, that seasoning quality uh, that believers are to have. And, and notice, so there are a couple of just kind of assumptions that, that flow along with these metaphors. Um, one of them is being that, um, that Christians are to be different just from the world. That's what salt and light in general are pointing to, is there, there's something different about the followers of Jesus in contrast to those who don't follow Christ, who, who do not, who have not placed their trust in him as their Lord and Savior. There's something that's to, to be distinctive. That's what salt is. It, it adds a distinctiveness um, to our, our food, and this is the, also to be true of Christians. They are, in some sense, as those of you familiar with John Stott, he used to love to, to uh, say that Christians are to be a, a kind of counterculture, uh, a countercultural community, especially in terms of their love for each other and their commitment to love the people of the world around them. We're not told to become salty. Okay, so Jesus is saying, you, you be, "This is what you have to become." He's saying, "You are." salt. And what he says is, not becoming, but uh, preserving your own saltiness. Preserve who you already are. You know, the gift of the Spirit is meant to, to change us from the inside out. And so, uh, the, the, the emphasis that Jesus has is, you know, this saltiness can be lost. This distinctiveness can be lost. And, you know, obviously believers can fall into apostasy. And Hebrews says if they do that, well, there's no message left. There's no word left for them. They are in a worse place than when they began. And so, Jesus says what we are meant to do is to preserve our saltiness. And what does that mean? Well, what this means is Jesus saying his followers are meant to be real, genuine, authentic followers of Jesus. Now, some of you are thinking, well, duh. (laughs) That's like, you know, self-evident. But it's not always the case. That's the problem. It should be self-evident that as followers of Christ, we are really genuinely meant to trust Jesus. But then financial difficulties come. But then temptations come. Then challenges in our relationships come up. And then we're, at, we're, then we're faced with this, this, this great um, test. Is our faith real? Is it genuine? Will it persevere? Is it steadfast? And that's what Jesus is, is telling his believers. You need to remain salty. Basically, he said, you need to remain in the spirit. You need to guard your hearts and your minds. You want your trust and your faith 
to be real, not just today, but from day to day to day. And similarly, Jesus uses the metaphor of light to describe his followers. He says in verse 14, again, you are not to become, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus expects his followers to live in the midst of the world. Um, That's part of it. So this is a light that's meant to be seen. (laughs) And it's meant to be seen by the the non-believers, by those who, by the non-Christians around us, which indicates that for the most part, there may be exceptions, but for the most part, Christians aren't to seek to escape they're living in a, uh, a, a, a the community uh, around them. We are, you know, for better or for worse, the church until the coming of Christ is Israel in Babylon. Okay, in other words, what we want to be is Israel in Israel, where everything is moving in the direction that our faith um, uh, would dictate or direct. We're not Israel in Israel. We are Israel living in the midst of a pagan society. We are Israel who has been exiled into Babylon. That's the nature of the church at the present. And we, and, and so our desire is we, we long for heaven. <laughs> we long to escape some of the, the pressures that that creates within us of living in a pagan society. But Jesus is saying, don't run off to the desert or to the mountains, join the monastery. I mean, for a time, that's, that's fine. But in general, we're meant to be a light within that, the world around us. Like salt, again, the, the image of light um, indicates there's something different about us, something antithetical in the way that Christians live, especially as they live in community with one another, from congregation to congregation. The you here is that second person plural. He's thinking of the you as a group, the you as a, as a society of followers, not just as individuals, although we're called to be salt and light as individuals as well. Every little local congregation is to be a little outpost of the future kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. Every congregation should esteem to be more and more like their king. So part of being that outpost is being conformed progressively into the image of Jesus through the power of the Spirit. And why should the world glorify God? Well, because the love, the unity, the service of believers, um, verse 16 In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, your, your kala erga, you know, that your good deeds, good works, kala erga, and give glory so that, and this is a reference to the world, that the world might give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay? So through these good deeds, you see, Jesus is saying that this is a way to promote the, this is the way to promote the kingdom. This is a way to be a witness such that it may even lead those who are on, currently on the outside to bow their knees and to actually give praise and glory to their Father, um, or to God, our Father in heaven. 
In the New Testament letter of 1 Peter, Peter the Apostle tells us that some, uh, sometimes good deeds can be employed powerfully without the person doing the deeds uttering a word. Okay? There is this possibility that 1 Peter highlights. It's an interesting example that he highlights. It's in 1 Peter um, chapter 3. And this is part of his instruction, um, well, to, to husbands and wives, but the part I'm going to read is, is just part of the instruction to wives. Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Okay, remember that subject is not to, you know, women to men. It's wives to your own specific husband. That's way back when you chose. <laughs> so to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, so apparently they've heard the word, they're not obeying the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. How? When they see... Now, speaking to the wives, your respectful and pure conduct. Peter's describing this, this situation, and it was common in the early church, where, you know, probably two people got married. Neither of them, you know, believed in Christ. Uh, they were pagans. And then the gospel goes out. Um, but in many cases, what would take place, uh, sometimes the husband would believe. And in that case, in the Roman system, very often, because of the, the system, the, the, the husband could say, this is going to be the religion of our household. And we see that take place in, in Acts. And, and, and so there was a different dynamic. But often it would be the wife who would come to Christ. And she wouldn't have that same kind of um, authority with relation to the, the husband. And so what do you do? Do, do you just tell, okay, just leave your husband, you know, just divorce him? No, that's not the, the first. Um, first Corinthians says, as long as your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay married, uh, Paul's counsel is you should stay married, even though your spouse does not share your faith. They, they, they don't share your faith in Jesus. So, but here's his, his, his counsel to the wives. His counsel is, don't keep, you know, um, trying to, to tell your, your husband about Jesus. Don't keep, you know, um, trying to work through the tract or, or to work through an outline of the gospel or something like this um, or to try to, to get him to listen to the radio or, or whatever. Don't do that. You, what you want to do is, you know, that front door is, is guarded with what? It's, it's guarded with pride you know, husband pride is guarded by hard-heartedness, love for the pagan idols, whatever. So that, that direct approach of trying to, to speak the gospel, it's, it's just going to meet a brick wall. It's going to only make things worse. So what Peter's saying is, there's a back door. <laughs> this is the way that you promote the kingdom in this kind of situation where the front door is gated, it's barred, it's impenetrable. You just let them see the spirit at work genuinely in your life. You let them see how your, your love for God and your commitment and devotion to following Christ is making real life-shaping changes in your attitude, in the way you regard your, your spouse, in the way you regard your life, in terms of your attitude. And in here, it's just described in terms of a respectful attitude, pure conduct. And the husband, it says, will see this. Now, it doesn't mean there's, but there's no guarantee that anybody's going to become a Christian through this, of course. 
But the point that Paul or Peter is making is that this is a way, at least in this case, and I think that this is not just about marriage, but it's a principle that would also apply to other similar kinds of relationships. It may be a close family member, you know, and probably someone maybe at the beginning you shared, you know, your faith with, um, and, and you could see immediately, you know, they're closed off. Um, they're, they're very impenetrable. They're, they're hardened to that message. I think this, this kind of reading would apply to those long-term um, friendships and, and family relationships that we have, that this is the point where opportunities may arise, of course, and we want to take advantage of them. But more often the case is you let them see the life-shaping evidence of the Spirit and the way you look at life and the way you trust God, you know, and the way that your security is not in the things of this world. It's not in your money. It's not in your health. It's not in your job or any of these things where your, your, your hope and trust is truly in the Lord. And when those close loved ones see that, what Peter's saying, it does have power and it can be very um, effective. Augustine, in terms of his relationship with his mother, Augustine was an intellectual. Intellectuals are sometimes the worst people to try to go through that front door with, with the message. Well, this is Augustine. And Augustine was, in his, you know, like 29 years old, um, an adult, when he bowed the knee to Jesus. And looking back in, in his confessions, he says this of his mom, and he says this in the form of a prayer. His mother, uh, her name was Monica. And Augustine just says, quote, she wept on my behalf, wept more than most mothers weep when their children die. And, and he continues, for she saw that which was dead by faith and spirit, referring to himself. And you heard her, Lord. You heard her and despised not her tears from pouring down. They watered the earth under her eyes in every place where she prayed. You heard her. Now, how did Augustine know about those tears? <laughs> At some point, he saw them. You know, he saw those tears for, and he knew what she was praying about, even though she wasn't directing it directly to him. And he says, you know, that slowly that was part of the process that God used to bring him to himself. Now, and this is a good point with Augustine. Ultimately, so his mother is not using words, generally speak, is what it sounds like. It's her example, her model. But what, what did the Lord do? In answer to her prayers, she brought another heavyweight by the name of Ambrose, <laughs> a, a Roman uh, bishop um, and who spoke with power. And, and the Lord providentially, you see, brought others into um, his life who could reach him with the words. And I think that's how this worked, because someone would be saying, are you saying that words are not necessary? No, of course not. I, I totally am with Romans ten fourteen. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how beautiful are the feet of those who what? Preach good news. So when we say without a word, well, the, 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 the hope and the assumption is that the Lord will bring the word, just not through you necessarily through someone else. 
I, I, another example of this, um, I, I read this book a while ago, um, probably eight or ten years ago, called Coming Apart by Charles Murray. He's a sociologist, and he's an academic. He's like a Harvard, MIT-trained um, scholar, and um, he's not a Christian. He's not a Christian at all. He's done some sociological work about, you know, um, uh, impoverished uh, groups of people. And, and, um, and what's interesting about his work is that in it, he, he shares a little bit about his marriage, and it turns out uh, that Charles Murray, not a Christian, <laughs> he, he, was, he considers himself like a, a secular humanist, but an enlightened humanist. But he talks about his wife briefly. She happens to be a Pentecostal Christian, okay? And he speaks of her with the greatest respect, and in fact, he not only respects her, you can tell the way he, he, he talks about her, that he wishes what she believes were true, though he can't quite bring himself to that conclusion. And it's even interesting, as he's very pessimistic about the future of American society, as many are, one of the, the, the potential solutions that he offers is a spiritual awakening in, like the first great awakening that took place in a very secular England during the 18th century under the leadership of John Wesley. Where did he get that? This Pentecostal wife of his is having an amazing impact on him. I, I fully, well, I, I hope, I, I would like to think that over time, Charles Murray will bend the knee he will profess Christ one day. So I want to come back just to the nature of these good deeds, these, these uh, good works, the, the kala erga that Jesus um, uh, seems to have in mind. And, and all I want to do um, with this third um, uh, point on your outline um, is I, I want to read from Titus chapter 2, 1 through 10. And, and there are a couple reasons I I, I I like this passage. Um, one is that, so we're asking the question, what are these good deeds, what do these good works look like? And, and I think part of our, our quick assumption is that what we're talking about are things like um, going to the soup kitchen, you know, and, and serving the homeless. Um, it's, uh, it's going and on a missions trip, or it's, it's getting involved in some kind of a a kind of special community um, need. And, and tr- to be sure, those are good things. But this passage talks about the Kala Erga, good works, in verse 7. And it also is in the context where, where um, the, the Apostle Paul is addressing Titus um, and, and establishing churches in Crete, on, in, in Crete. And and it's very clear that the apostle in the back of his mind has this idea that these good works will be a witness to the surrounding people because you see this in different places. So all I'm going to do, I, I just put it on the slide because I'm not going to make a lot of comment about this, but just so you can see this. This is um, uh, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes to Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he's going to address different groups. Older men, younger men, uh, um, older women and younger women. Um, he's going to address Titus as a church leader, and he'll address even those who are slaves. 
Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. See, that, that phrase there, that the word of God may not be reviled. You see, he's thinking that these, this conduct, you see, is promoting the kingdom in such a way so that the outsiders will not malign, that they'll not have reason to attack uh, the word, at least uh, in terms of the conduct of Jesus' um, uh, followers. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Self-controlled is a big theme throughout this passage. And then he speaks to Titus and to other church leaders. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. That, there's our term, the, the kala erga. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Again, he has this witness in, in view of how the outsiders will see this. It cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Even slaves, you see, can be a witness, can promote the kingdom. You know, he's looking at those who are at the very bottom of society. Even these bond servants can be a, a witness um, uh, through their uh, loyalty to their masters. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Now think of that just especially in terms of employees, not argumentative, <laughs> not stealing, you know, to have integrity. And in that, you are being a witness. So that in everything, here it is, this is that um, uh, letting your light so shine, so that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. See, the, all groups of people. And what I want you to see, though, is that these are not the extraordinary things that we might associate with, you know, doing good deeds. This is not, you know, it's like, you know, selling your home and giving it all to the poor. This is simply letting your faith be genuine, be authentic, and being real day to day. You see, that's where people are wondering. They know that anybody can, like, um, show their good side or, or kind of play a role for a time. But day to day, hour to hour, those who are closest to you, what would they say about your Christian witness? And that's what he's talking about here. And this is critical to being salt and to being the light that God would have us to be. It may be in our current context of polarization and cultural suspicion, and, and there's a, especially a suspicion of evangelicals, that we need to take to heart all the more the cultivation of authentic faith, of love, and good deeds. Good deeds and gospel proclamation go hand in hand, and we need to be increasingly intentional in being who God wants us to be so that the kingdom is promoted to the glory of God.
Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we are grateful for your word. And Lord, we pray that your word would penetrate our hearts, that we would be sincere in the way we live with one another, that our love would be sincere. And we know, Lord, that in many respects, we can't, we can't gin this up in our own strength. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit, that you're the spirit of love and grace and peace would truly be operative in our hearts and in our lives so that you receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.